I had a friend in high school and he was gay and he was an incredible person and I loved being his friend, but deep down I felt a sense of shame. I think the shame stemmed from some toxic theology that I was raised with. That theology taught me that anyone that was attracted to the same sex was living in sin and choosing to live in sin and that I shouldn't surround myself with people that chose that life. Now looking back, it makes me really sad and a little bit angry because I know that it likely held me back from deepening that friendship. The last few years, I've really deconstructed my faith and I feel so much freedom and a much larger capacity to love every single person, no matter what. And I don't feel held back anymore. I now have a deep realization that God truly loves every person, no matter race, gender, sexuality, status. And I know God would just want us to be inclusive and he would want us to love each other instead of fearing each other. All right. It's a good way to wake you up. We've had some problems with this microphone, so they'll get it worked out. No worries. Good to see everybody. Uh, my name is Ryan, and I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. It's great to be together. That was my mother-in-law that we baptized, by the way, so that was pretty cool for us. And uh, so just a couple of things about that. Like, I don't know some of you that might have been around. Like, when she got here, she was in a wheelchair and really couldn't, like, walk it off. So just lots of good healing happening in her life physically, uh, which is cool. And she's known me since I was 17 years old. And uh, the first time I met her, this is a true story, I was in the middle of a raging calf cramp rolling around on her living room floor um, to there. It's quite a, that's, that's a journey, right? That's a, that's a journey that happens. So Wendy and I, tomorrow, will have been married 24 years. And then, yeah. And uh, we dated for, I think, four or five years before that, so about... 30 years of life, and Cindy's been a part of all of that, so what a cool moment, but uh, yeah, so it's great to be together. Bree's campfire story is a powerful story. It's a challenging story. It's a story of how something beautiful like Jesus, right, the way of Jesus, the life of Jesus, something beautiful like God's love can easily become a place of pain and shame, right? And that's, that's what happens, right? Today's topic, this idea of a God of inclusion, is probably the most important topic of our generation in terms of following Jesus. It's probably the number one reason why many people have abandoned a relationship, not with God, but with a church. Because they've looked and said, wait a second, something doesn't add up. And Bree's story is this like powerful story of a human condition, a human tendency right, to look for a reason to justify what we don't understand and how to just push it out of our lives. That's privilege in a certain realm. But, right, it's a great story of how when we take something we don't understand that's not a part of our story, we'll take our religion, we'll take our values, we'll figure out some way to justify why we can just get it out of our lives, why we can exclude it. And perhaps you have experienced the pain of that exclusion and maybe this morning this topic is deeply important to you because you have somehow survived that trauma, and yet you still have the wound, and you still have the trauma to show for it, and yet you're still showing up in a church setting that represents maybe a lot of pain. Or maybe you've been the source of exclusion. 
Maybe you've been a part of a spirituality that at one point in time taught you what it taught Bree, right? That there are certain people, there are certain things, there are things that take place in our world that you have to make sure that you don't have any participation, that you get them out of your life. Don't have table fellowships, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. We don't have table fellowship with those people, right? And, and the way in which we looked at the Bible, the way in which you were handed at the Bible really became this manual for who is in and who's out, who to exclude, who do we love, who do we not. And instead of maybe recognizing a more mature or adult-like way of reading the Bible, that even within the Bible we find the tension of human existence on its pages, we just assumed, well, if so-and-so said it or somebody wrote it, then it must absolutely be what I have to follow without any question. And so maybe somewhere along the way, you just picked up this habit, like me, of figuring out who to exclude. And sometimes it's something as simple as a personality difference, right? We just, we don't get along, so we just kind of exclude them from our work group. We exclude them from the neighborhood group, from the book club, right? Maybe it's our religious differences, kind of what we started to explore a little bit. I know that I personally have had to spend time in my own life repenting of the sin of exclusion. There's a lot of things about my spiritual heritage and my ancestors that I kind of grew up with that I appreciate and that I value deeply and that I wouldn't be here today without, but there are things that I've had to go through this process of recognizing that I was handed some stuff that I took on and I kept a hold of out of fear. And I've had to do my own share of recognizing that I'm a person that wounds, that has wounded, and sometimes I've wounded with the best of intentions. Y'all ever done that? Y'all ever excused your wounding of others in the name of love? What's the most loving thing to do? Right? And that's, that's, the, that's this like cycle. And so I'm in no way perfect, but I think it's probably one of those reasons why I have a super passion about it, because I think it is like the defining reality of the gospel, this message of Jesus um, and his life and death and what we hold as resurrection. I think it is the defining feature of the church right now, and I think we're going to get through it I just think there's a lot of pain around it. Because here's the thing, the human condition is that we tend to define ourselves based upon the differences that we have, right? We, we, we create our group, and our group is, is certainly based upon what we have in common, but a lot of times it's based upon, and the edges are built around our differences. And if you've heard me talk about the domes of existence before, if you haven't, you just haven't been around long enough, because I eventually bring this up because I think it's a great metaphor, great visual, that we have these three domes that we live in. The first dome that we live in is our smallest, most shallow dome, the ego, my story, where I grew up, my identity. It's important. We have to have that. It's not bad. It's not bad. I want to hear that. We have to have a, a, a sense of identity. If you have no sense of identity, that can lead to very painful realities. So we have the my story. Then the second dome above that is our story right? It's our group think. We're all a part of it. We need our groups. Crossroads is a group. Christianity is a group, right? Male, female, non-binary, those are all groups. Heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, transgender, they're all groups. We need our groups. There's nothing wrong with our groups. And we have our stories. And it's in our stories that we oftentimes find a great sense of hope and healing. We find a sense of purpose. But we also find a lot of othering in our group think. In those groups and the way we define ourselves, the edges, again, are built upon who's in and who's out. But then there's the story, the big dome, the one that's like hidden right in front of us in the scripture when we say there's but one God. There's just one story, and all these groups are a part of it. 
And, and, and really healthy spirituality, healthy faith, healthy religion is always trying to find how do we exist in those spaces and how do those spaces always push us forward in maturity, right? Maturity, spiritually speaking, is a movement from me to we to us, <laughs> Right? It's that movement right, where I understand myself appropriately, I understand my groups appropriately, and I understand the big story appropriately. And it's in these little groups, it's in the we category, that we dome, that oftentimes it's our ignorance, it's our fear, and it's our anger based on those differences that lead to this very, very terrible, painful, violent thing that we call othering right now right? It's in when we get tight-knit into our groups, when our groups become unquestionable. Richard Rohr uh, said, whenever something in our lives becomes unquestionable, it's demonic. I love that. Whenever we're not allowed to ask, hey, wait a second, when it has that kind of a control on us, it's moved into this realm of demonic. And that's what happens in our groups. Like, we love it. We love our groups. They're powerful. But when we question a group, when we question something about a group that we might even be in or a group that we see, all of a sudden, like fear sets in and it leads to this othering. So othering is defined as viewing or treating a person or a group of people intrinsically different from an alien to yourself. That there's something about them because they are Republican, because they're a Democrat, because they're, I don't even know what all the political parties there are, right? Because they're one of those, whatever those are, they're intrinsically different than you, that there's something about them that's just not right. There's something about them that is unwhole, right? There's a journal called the Othering and Belonging Journal, and they wrote an article called uh, The Problem of Othering Towards Inclusiveness and Belonging. It's a really great article. I would encourage you to Google it, read it. It's very, very long. It's kind of a technical academic article. I understood like 5% of it. Um, but it's really great, and, and it kind of goes over, and there's a couple of things that this article said that I think are important for us, it's, and they, they said that the problem of the 21st century is the problem of othering. Like, this is the defining problem, not just of the church, but it's a defining problem of the global society. It's looking at people that don't speak my language and assuming that they're not as smart as me because they don't speak my language. Imagine that. But that's like in us. I've met people that speak three, four, five languages because they don't speak mine. I automatically assume, oh, they can't understand me. They must not be as bright. But that's, the, that's what happens. Like, that's a little like silly reality of othering, but that's the problem of the 21st century. And they write and they give lots of examples, but they say virtually every global, national, and, and regional conflict, right? Every global, national, and regional conflict is wrapped up and organized around one or more dimensions of group-based difference, of tribal-type thinking. And these dimensions that produce all the othering, right, they include things like religion, sex, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, disability, sexual orientation, skin tone. These are all those things, right? And, and they produce all kinds of conflict around the world, produce death and famine and genocide, produce the exclusion, the pain, the hurt. And, and in doing that, we are dehumanizing one another. That's what othering does. Othering gives us a path to dehumanize, to rationalize inequality, and it justifies hatred 
And it tramples the image of God, the imago dei, that's found in every human being on the planet. Like, that's the Christian fundamental belief, is that every human being on the planet is created in the image of God. And when we other, we take that image of God and we rip it out, like alien, like, right? Pull it out. Whenever we separate, right? Now, the story that we're going to look at today, man, I'm just looking at the time. We have a lot of words today. I mean, that was the intro. Oh, man, we're in for a marathon today. All right, so you got to keep up. We're going to go fast now, right? Because we got to look at a whole book of the Bible. It's a little one, but it's still the whole book. Brian's freaking out. He's worried. He's like, wait a second. Okay, no, here's the deal. The story of Jonah is what I want to look at today. Because the story of Jonah is ultimately God's response to the human condition of othering. I grew up in a world that told me, Jonah is about why you don't disobey God, because God will throw you in the sea and everything that God wants you to do, this was like what would present it when they would preach the story of Jonah. Like, to, for God to put a call on your life, it's, you've got to be miserable. And you're not going to want to do it. But you do it anyway, because otherwise there's a sea and a storm and a great fish. And here's the deal. Like, that's really not what the story of Jonah is about at all. The story of Jonah is, is similar to the story of Job in that it's teaching us wisdom. It's giving us this story set in an ahistorical time. So the story of Jonah, we don't know who the king of Nineveh is. We don't know who the king of Israel is at the time. The only kind of historical bit of peace that we're given is that the guy Jonah is associated with a prophet who's named earlier uh, as part of the history of Israel. So it's kind of taken this, uh, taken this man and placed him in this story, but the point of the story of Jonah is meant it's to transcend time. It's a timeless narrative, and it speaks to the evils and the dangers of arrogance and othering that happen to us when we think we've got it all right with God, when we're the chosen ones. And it speaks to the beauty and the goodness and the mercy of God's inclusion. You know, I happen to think that there are passages in Scripture that are like two steps forward in the vision of God for this world, and there are passages in Scripture that are one step backwards into human reality. It's a tension that we all live with. You all have good days and bad days, right? You have some days where you're like crushing it just like Jesus, gave some money to the person who didn't have any, didn't yell at my spouse when they deserved it, made breakfast for my kids, mowed my neighbor's lawn. And then you have days where you're like, in the name of Jesus, may that lawn rot. I can't believe how loud the neighbors were last night. You're producing curses over their cars, right? That's a one step backwards, right? Two step forward. That's the beauty of our Christian scripture is I've come to believe and see that if you really take the Bible for what it is, the beauty of what it is, that's baked into it. So let's ask the question, what wisdom does Jonah offer? So for those that aren't familiar with the story of Jonah, uh, that's awesome. But Jonah is the story of this guy who's a prophet who gets this phone call from God one day. And God says, hey, I want you to go to this town called Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and, and, and the Assyrian Empire had earlier destroyed the Israelite nation. Like, Assyria had come and, like, exiled a big chunk of Israel. And so the Assyrians and Nineveh represent, in the imagination of the people who would have been reading this, a town, a city that's like, mm-mm, no thank you. So we just have to kind of know that. We wouldn't know that because most of us have never been to Assyria. So Nineveh, capital city, 
God calls Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to warn them. They're acting so bad towards one another, so wicked, that it came to my desk. Right? Imagine. Imagine that your behavior towards your neighbor is so bad that God gets a memo. Like, not a lesser angel, not one of the court members. Because you got to remember, like, in Israelite imagination and thinking, like, there's a whole court of divine beings that are out there. But, like, it's so bad, the stench of it rises all the way to God's desk. And you got to imagine, if you're on that post-it note, that can't be good. But here's the deal. Jonah refuses the assignment. He, like, hangs up on God, <laughs> And he's like, I got to get away from God. The text actually says he tries to get away from God. It says, but Jonah made ready to flee to Tarshish, which is, by the way, in the opposite direction, from the Lord. And so he went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the Lord. Now, I, I, I capitalize Lord here because this is an important reality. When you see the word Lord, all capital letters in a lot of translations, it's referring to a divine name, Yahweh. That's how we pronounce it. We don't really know the vowels, but the consonants are Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. Maybe you've pronounced it as Jehovah. We can thank the German scholars for that one because they don't have a Y sound, so we get J, all right? But it's important to understand because Yahweh was the God of Israel, right? When we read the Old Testament, we see God, Lord, that type of thing. It's referring specifically to the God Yahweh. The Israelites lived and grew. Paul, in his name, was a polytheistic society. It was not unheard of or uncommon at all to think that there were other gods. The Israelites, ancient Israel, they, were, they, they understood the reality that there were other national deities. We're talking about a highly tribalistic time and space. So every tribe, every nation had their gods. When you lost a war, it was because the, the victory, the, the winning team, the winning nation, like their God was more powerful than yours, right? That was the prevailing belief. So Yahweh's an important name in this story, right? So he tries to run away from Yahweh, and then it says that Yahweh sends the storm. So that's what's going to happen. You got to remember that, all right? Now, Jonah's in the boat. Storm comes. What's going on? It says that each sailor, all the sailors on this boat are freaking out. They're like, what is going on? So they all start praying to their own gods, right? Because they're not Israelites. They're just going to Tarshish, doing their business. They've got their own gods. They're from their own nation, whatever. So they start going, what did we do? Y'all ever have a bad day? And you're like, what did I do? Let me just examine myself. Because we still think like God is like, there's this karmic reality to life to a certain degree. Like, what is that? So they're doing what we would do, right? Why is this storm happening? They start throwing all the cargo overboard. They're now losing money. And during all of this, you're asking the question as you read the story, where is Jonah? Like the sailors are freaking out. They're praying to their gods. They're throwing over their cargo. Maybe they even threw Jonah's luggage over. That would be the great irony, right? <laughs> Later on, spoiler alert, Jonah ends up in a whale. Like his bag is there already. <laughs> that would be funny, right? It's like, oh, thank God, I thought I lost those pair of pants. You know? <laughs> so Jonah, where is he, right? Text says, meanwhile, Jonah had gone down into the hold of the ship, and he's fast asleep. Storms raging, ship is going everywhere. He's like, I'm running away from Yahweh. It's good, I got my ticket. So the captain approaches him and says, what are you doing asleep? Now remember, these are not Israelites. These are pagans. 
And I just mean that in the sense of they're not following Yahweh in the mind of the reader, like who this was written to. He's like, what are you doing? Say, get up, call on your God. Like, this is an outsider saying to the insider, the chosen one, part of the chosen people, you need to start praying. Perhaps whoever God you serve will be mindful of us so that we won't perish. Isn't it crazy? Jonah doesn't even see the collateral damage to his rebellion. Like all these people's lives are in jeopardy because of what he's doing, of his perspective. He's just down there asleep. So they wake Jonah up. They all gather. It's kind of a funny thing in this story, right? There's this storm raging, then all of a sudden they pull out the dice. Like, we've got to figure out what's going on. <sighs> hard seven, hard seven. You know, like they're, I don't know what's going on, but they're casting lots to find out whose fault it is. Because this is the way antiquity worked. If there's a storm raging, it's somebody's fault, right? There's no like weather patterns, there's no storm, right? And people that are still stuck in pre-enlightenment religion, they want to blame natural disasters on God and God's punishment. But we know in Jesus, that's not the way it works. But they're still in that mindset. So they're like, all right, we got to cast lots. So they're rolling dice. And sure enough, it comes on Jonah. <laughs> right? Jonah's like, yeah, you got me. And here's what's crazy. These pagan, non-Israelite, non-chosen people, they can't believe what Jonah has done. They can't believe it. So Jonah explains the whole story. Listen, I serve the God, Yahweh. Yahweh is the God of the land and the sea. Sorry, <laughs> right? Like, again, you've got to bring a little bit of like what you learn about Greek mythology, right? It's not Poseidon and Zeus. It's just Yahweh, right? Like, he's the God of it all. And they're freaked out. And it says that the men were seized with great fear. And they said to him, how could you do such a thing? We would say like this, how could you be so stupid? That's how we would say it, right? How could you be so dumb? Like you're trying to flee from your God that is the God of the sea and the earth? Like where exactly do you think you're going to go? Like space travel hasn't been invented, so we haven't had to worry about that yet. But like where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Because Jonah had told them, I is my bad. And it's funny, in the story, this is an important part of the story, that even the Gentiles, right, the great other category, so Gentile is the Bible word for anyone who wasn't a Jew, right? Even the others knew the folly of disobeying the gods. They were like, this is crazy talk. Who would ever do that? Like, we would never do that. The sailors are saying, listen, we don't serve the God of the land and the sea, but we're the God we serve, we would never disobey that God if they told us. So they say to Jonah, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And Jonah says, eh, you got to throw me overboard. <laughs> now, you would think like if these are just like pagan people, no values, no morals, they're like, sure, it's going to save us. That's fine. No. They're like, no way. We're not going to kill you. We're not going to murder you. So they tried to harder and harder to get their rowing, their rowing, their rowing, but it just gets worse and worse and worse. So finally they say, they cry out. And who do you think they pray to? In this story, do they pray to their gods? No, they pray to Yahweh. You, like this is all part of the story, right? So they're no longer praying to their gods, but they're praying to Yahweh, the God of Jonah, who's caused the storm. I mean, after all, Yahweh's after Jonah. He doesn't seem to be bothered by us at all. So they cry out. They say, please, Yahweh, don't let us perish for taking this man's life. Don't charge us with shedding innocent blood. Like, they might have said innocent in parentheses, innocent blood, for you have accomplished what you desired, right? So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea stopped raging right away. 
And the text, the story says, they were seized with great fear of Yahweh, great respect of Yahweh, this other God. And so they immediately offered sacrifices to that God and they made vows. They're like, whoa, this is crazy. Now again, these are like the opposite of the chosen people, right? Jonah who represents the chosen people, Jonah who represents the insider, Jonah who represents the prophet of God is going in the opposite direction, disobeying. And these are just sailors minding their own business who this God of the chosen people doesn't seem to be bothered at all by. Not bothered at all by they have their own gods. Not bothered at all by any of it. The Gentile sailors are quick to recognize Yahweh's power. Right? It's, it, this is part of the story. The chosen one is doing the exact opposite of what everybody, like, of what you would expect. And the ones that, if you're in the in-group, that you want to other are actually doing everything right. And so Jonah gets thrown overboard. The sea calms, and it says, but Yahweh sent a great fish to swallow Jonah, and he remained in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, many have tried to prove this scientifically. Hasn't yet happened. We don't think people live inside the belly of whales. Could it have happened? Sure. Is it likely? Probably not. So listen, I don't really care if you believe in this story literally or not. I don't think God does either because we miss it. So if you believe that Jonah slid in the belly of the whale and that God performed this miracle, great, wonderful. If you're kind of like me and go, eh, I don't see that happening, you don't have to throw it away because the point is not to teach us that men can live in the belly of whales. That's not the point. If that's the point of the story, then we should really investigate. But that's not the point of the story. This is a beautiful tale that's meant to teach us something. And whether we take it and hold it literally or not, I don't think it matters. We spend way too much time on that conversation. And something powerful happens while Jonah is in the whale. He prays. He prays to you. Finally, he prays. Like, all the sailors are praying. Everybody, finally, he's like, all right, what else am I going to do? So he prays in the fish in the belly of the whale. And, and this space that Jonah was in, let's call that liminal space. Like, the, no, no better place for, like, in-between, transition, life evaluation than the belly of a whale, right? The, the whale represents this type of space. You're in-between what is and what will be, right? You're, you're kind of waiting. What's going to happen? I mean, I don't know. Jonah's like, should I put up pictures? How long am I going to be here? I don't know, right? What's going on? It's the opportunity for transformation. And I love that Jonah prays in that liminal space. I love the way the story goes. And so it says that the Lord then commands the fish to spew Jonah out onto dry land, and then we get take two of the directive. Say, hey, Jonah, I'd like you to go to Nineveh and warn the people. And Jonah goes this time. (laughs) It's like, lesson learned, right? So he goes and he gives a warning. And the text says that when the news reached the king of Nineveh, we don't know who the king of Nineveh is. We don't know what time period is supposed to be, remember. It just reaches the king. So here's this little prophet nobody knows from Israel going around with a little megaphone telling people they need to repent, they need to change. And it reaches to the king of Nineveh and he, like, he puts on sackcloth, starts mourning. He proclaims throughout all of Nineveh By decree of the king and his nobles, no man or beast, no cattle or sheep shall taste anything. It's a forced fast. Even the beasts of the field are not eating. I hope you're getting a bit of the hyperbole here, right? Like, 
I mean, they muzzled and nobody's eaten the whole place. We're not going to eat. We're not going to drink any water. Everybody should be covered in sackcloth. <laughs> so all the cattle ranchers got to go and put sackcloth on all the cattle. All the sheep have to wear, all the chickens, little chicken sackcloths, right? <laughs> okay, you, get, you with me on the story now? All right. Everybody's wearing sackcloth and ashes, which is the sign of repentance and mourning. Everybody's going to turn away from their evil way and from the violence of their hands. You got to remember, this is about violence and, and evil done to one another. That's the underlying sin, right? And the king says, who knows? God may again repent and turn from this blazing wrath so that we will not perish. And when God saw by their actions, I love that phrase, by their actions, how they turned from their evil way, he repented of the evil he did, threatened to do to them, and he didn't carry it out. This very ancient language, right? This destruction that was going to take place. This God, he always says, no, I'm not going to do it. And here's that, yet a third time, the Gentiles, the Ninevites, were quick to change their actions. They were like, yes, I'm in. So the sailors, the Ninevites, they're all doing the exact opposite of Jonah, the prophet, the chosen one. Now, Jonah gets ticked off, the story goes. I mean, he is honked off at God, like ticked off, because Jonah wanted the others to pay. He wanted the Ninevites to pay. He didn't like the Ninevites. Hearkening in the Israelite imagination are the Assyrians, the Ninevites that would come in and destroy their homes and burn their city. So he prays to God, oh Lord, this is why I didn't want to go. This is why I said no when I was back in my own country. I didn't want to go. This is why I first fled to Tarshish. Because I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in kindness, repenting of punishment. So now, Lord, please take my life from me. Take it. Take it all. It's better for me to die than to live. If they have to live on this planet, I don't want to live on the same planet with them. Again, hyperbole. It's part of the story. And I love Yahweh says, are you right to be angry? Such a good question. I mean, I wouldn't lead that with your, an argument with your spouse or your significant other when they're <laughs> Are you right to be angry? So it says that Jonah left the city, right? And he went out to the east and he built himself a little hut and he waited under it and he found some shade and he wanted to see what would happen to the city. <laughs> Can we just pause for a second? Like God has spared the city and Jonah is still hoping for the worst. He, so he goes out of the city, he's like, it'll never last. These people, it's not real. And he's just watching. And now God uses an object lesson to help Jonah get the point. And it helps us all get the point. So he takes Jonah, and, he, and he, overnight he allows this plant to grow, a gourd plant, it says. And it's just this big leafy plant. And it provides all the shade. And all of a sudden, the like, east wind comes, and it's blowing the next day, and it's super hot. And he's out there, but the plant has given him all this shade, and it's so wonderful. And he's just comfortable as he watches big shade plant. doesn't know where it came from, but it's just there. And then all of a sudden, the plant withers and dies, like instantly. And now he's just under the scorching sun. The plant is dead. And he's cursing the plant. He's so angry. And he says it again. It's better for me to die than to live. And God repeats the question only now with a visible object. God says to Jonah, 
do you have a right to be angry over the gourd plant? Like I asked you before, do you have a right to be angry over these people and the fact that they're living and not dying? And you said, yes, absolutely. I don't, I don't want to live on the same planet with those people. And so God's like, oh my gosh, this is the best I got. All right, let's try this. Grows the plant up. And he says, do you have a right to be angry over the gourd plant? And Jonah answers again, I have every right to be angry over the gourd plant. Yes, I do. Angry enough to die. He says, oh my gosh, the arrogance on this one. God says, okay, you're concerned over the gourd plant, that it's dead, and now you're angry that it's dead. And that gourd plant didn't cost you any effort. You didn't grow it. You didn't plant it. You didn't water it. You just sat there, and it happened around you. It came up in one night, and in one night it perished. And look at how bad you feel. Look at how angry you are over it. Look at how invested you are. And you had nothing to do with it. But shouldn't I be concerned over the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 persons? Shouldn't I love them? Shouldn't they be worthy of grace? Like I've cared and planted them in Nineveh. Shouldn't, shouldn't they be? And he says, and this is what he says, is they cannot even know their right hand from their left. Like Yahweh recognizes these people in Nineveh. It's not that they don't know, they can't know. There's something about this, this reality of life that they cannot know. They don't even know their right from their left, not to mention all the animals, all this. What am I supposed to do? So here's the thing, like, don't miss this, right? This is what God is saying to Jonah, like, divine love is planting and growing and working everywhere, and therefore divine love never others, never others, never celebrates in the destruction of one, never says you're out, never says you can't be, never others. They cannot know their right from their left. That's the beauty of divine love. It is all understanding. And when you understand someone, no matter what they do to you, when you understand what's behind that, you can always come back in love and forgiveness because you get it. You get it. That's the beauty of the cross. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Why? They know not what they do. It wasn't a trick question. I was hoping that was a big one. They don't know what they're doing. It's easy to forgive somebody. Like it's a little kid, right? Our son Judah, I'm going to share a story. I shouldn't, I should ask first. But Judah, was, he was always so curious when he was real little. One time we found him downstairs and he's like in a pile of eggs and he was in, a, in, in milk and he had syrup and like he was just having a good old time with everything he could find in the refrigerator. He was like one and a half, two years old. Like, oh, Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. Like, I'm going to get mad and angry. No, he's just a curious kid playing around with eggs and whatever else he found. But you don't, I don't freak out and kick him out at two years old. You're going to mess up my eggs? How am I going to have I can't have eggs now? A whole dozen eggs? Do you know how much maple syrup costs in New England? That's real maple syrup. <laughs> That's not Aunt Jemima garbage. That stuff was sapped out of a tree, boiled down for hours. Get out! No. When you understand limitations and fears and hurt, oh man, that's where love that conquers all sits. See, love conquers all because love understands all. God understands our limitations, our fears, our insecurities that drive us. 
So in your everyday normal life, I'm going to hand it back to you here in about five minutes, all right? In your everyday normal life, here's some questions that I think we can pull from this story to gain some wisdom. Number one, am I on a path of self-destruction? I want to be very clear. I think the point of the story is that the Ninevites were on a path of self-destruction, right? The destruction that they were facing was not coming firsthand of God, this God that sits on a throne with hands and arms and lightning bolts. It's the reality when you act violently enough towards one another, you will eventually destroy yourselves. That's the warning. We're not being saved from God. You don't have to be saved from love. Come on. I don't need to be saved from God. I need to be saved from me. I need to be saved from you. (laughs) Right? That's the thing. And so the Ninevites changed their actions. And Jesus reveals that the Spirit of God can guide us into new paths of life. Life and not death. It's a narrow road, though. But we have to ask ourselves that question. Am I on a path of self-destruction? Am I making choices in my life that are destroying my family and my relationships and my health? Do I need to make a change? Just a question worth asking. Another question we could ask ourselves is, am I a fish or a storm when it comes to my faith? Am I a fish or a storm? See, the fish was a place of rescue. A weird place of rescue, but it was a place of rescue. The fish was a place for transformation, a place of examine, a place where God was experienced in the story. Is that, is that what I want to be as a person? Am I that place? Is Crossroads that kind of church? Are we a place that is a space where people can come and ask questions and, and, and be in liminal space, a place of safety? Or are we the storm? And too often, religion, church, feels like a storm that just brings tension and exclusion and pain And is my faith doing that? Is my faith just excluding people? Is my faith telling people that they're terrible? Is my faith telling people that you need to be afraid of God? Am I a fish or a storm kind of follower of Jesus? I want to be a fish. And I want to be a big fish. You know what I'm saying? I want our church to be a big fish where people can come and pray and examine and ask questions and know that they're safe. See, the great fish was hope. And then here's the third question. Do I need to repent of hoping for the worst in someone? Do I need to actually change my actions towards a group of people, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, a category? Do I need to start humanizing people? See, the way we repent is that. Like, okay, I'm going to repent of it, so I'm going to get to know somebody who's different. I'm going to welcome them to my table now. Because eventually, we're all going to sit at God's table. And I know that for some reason, this is not a popular statement amongst followers of Jesus around the world. But I believe that God has built and is building a table that's foundation is love and sacrifice. And that that table, everyone will sit at eventually. And I think that scripture gives us enough witness to the audacious claim of this universal divine inclusion that will bring everyone in. And, I mean, we could go through them. I mean, I could go through verse after verse after verse, but you want to get back to your everyday normal life. But there are verses, like, love never fails. We talked about that one. I love this one. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, those on earth, and of those under the earth. Okay? 
and that every tongue should gladly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In Philippians, that's a good one. That, that love is going to do this. Love is working out and building this table that's just bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. First Timothy says that God is the Savior of all people. Of all people. This is what God is doing, and the call to live this out right now is to represent this way of grace and peace and inclusion. And when we live this out, you know what happens? Like belonging and inclusion start to mark our churches, our families, our society, our world. And when belonging and inclusion mark our existence, war ends. What is war? War is simply the intolerance of a person who's different than me. It says, I can no longer live with you being different than me. And I do believe that this point, this reality of inclusion and belonging and a gospel of peace for everyone is the defining reality of the church today. And it is a hill that I believe Jesus died on and one that I'm willing to die on as well. That article I mentioned earlier said this, said belongingness entails an unwavering commitment to not simply tolerating and respecting differences, but to ensure that all people are welcome and that they all feel that they belong. That's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. So as we wrap up today, what's God inviting you into? We're going to get you out of here to go and include and enjoy. Pull out your Connect card for me real quick and pull out that offering envelope. Get those ready. In just a moment, our room hosts are going to receive the offering. We had a big supersized Sunday with baptisms and friends from Poland here. So we want to wrap up. We'll have a song. But here's some next steps for us to think about. Maybe you're headed down that path of self-destruction and you're like, I want to start fresh today. I want to start fresh today by following Jesus, this path of love and inclusion and grace and forgiveness. And I want to be transformed. It's just a decision that we make in faith that it can happen. I just check that box. We'll follow up with you. You don't have to do this on your own. But maybe you just say, I just need a fresh start. Maybe you feel God inviting you to just continually be a person that creates space for others to belong. That you're willing to change your life to make space for someone else's life. Do you know, um, did you notice today during the music the, the words were different? Did you notice the orange bar and the, the words were different? Did anybody notice that? Some of you did. Thank you. No. You should know, like, that was a matter of, like, making space for the other. So every week we evaluate everything. And we're in staff meeting, and Wendy, who is our director of disability inclusion, says, hey, the way we do lyrics, if you, are, if you have some problems seeing or if you're colorblind, you can't see the lyrics. So, so we got to change that. So we always make space, always include. Maybe. Maybe we need to do some repenting. And I know that's a scary word, but repentance is healing. You know, you cannot get well from a doctor until you go and confess to the doctor your symptoms, right? Imagine if you showed up to the doctor's office and you're in like serious pain and they were like, what's wrong? You're like, nothing. I just wanted to make an appointment. I'm good. Well, can you tell me where the pain is? I'd rather not. Like, is it in your feet? I just don't want to say I'm not comfortable. It makes me feel bad. I'm embarrassed. 
Repentance is healing. It's confession. It's beautiful. It's not control. We don't have to be afraid that maybe, maybe it's time to just confess before God to a close friend. Man, I've got to overcome some fear of a group. I've got to overcome some othering that I've done. So do me a favor. Finish filling out that connect card. Give generously today in the offering. Enjoy this song. Just sit for a moment, and then we'll get you out of here to go enjoy the rest of your day. blessing for this week. Sometimes we're just in such a hurry to what's next. We can miss what's now. So in this moment, just breathe deep the grace of truth, the grace of love, the grace of hope. So this week, may divine love open your eyes. Open your eyes to those who are experiencing the evil of othering. And may your heart be heavy and burdened enough that your hands take action. And for those of us who may in fact be consciously or unconsciously excluding or othering people, may perfect love cast out all fear. And may our hearts be turned towards understanding rather than judging. And may crossroads be like the great fish for many in the storms of religion and life. May we be a space of hope a safe space for deconstruction of dangerous spirituality and reconstruction of healthy spirituality grounded in the peacemaking path and work of Jesus, the one who we proclaim in faith to be living and working among us, transforming our sorrows into joy, our despair into hope, and our fear into love. Amen. Have an amazing week, everyone.